You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us at Calvary. So let me start by asking this question. Some of you know what this is, and then if not, we'll fill it in. How many of you like something that's called caldo gallego? You know what that is? You like it? How many of you know what it is and don't like it? How many of you don't know what it is? Okay. Oh, good. Fresh meat. We'll talk about that. So if you don't know what that is, that, uh, caldo gallego is a, uh, it's a soup that Cuban moms make to torment their children. Uh, it is made with like, in fact, I think we have a picture of it. Yeah, I, like I just threw up in my mouth a little bit just seeing it. Uh, it's made with collard greens and ham. It's about as salty as the Dead Sea. And <clears throat> I hated it. I would get so upset. Uh, and honestly, my, my mom uh, would torture me uh, to eat it. I would get home from school. The bus would drop me off. I walked a couple blocks home and then I'd walk in the door and my mom would be making dinner and she would say, hey, Cardo Gallego tonight, and just to like make my evening miserable, just like to let that, you know, and I, every t- I would walk through the kitchen and it's just like, hey, Cardo Gallego tonight. I'm like, dude, if you don't like children, don't have any. That was my thought. <clears throat> but anyway, well, so here's how it worked. Dinner, what my uh, mom would do is she, she would make Cardo Gallego, but then she would make my favorite meal, rice, black beans, and steak. But that was on the other side of the hurdle which is this disgusting soup. And so the way it worked is at my house, we had these bowls. They were like, I don't know, maybe like an almond uh, color. And then they had this little blue uh, stripe, you know, like around the, the rim, maybe about a quarter of an inch underneath, just to give you an idea. My mom would fill the soup up to the blue line. And then she would say, look, here's what we're going to do. She's like, Robert, I don't want to deal with this with you. You have 30 minutes to eat this soup. If you're not done in 30 minutes, I fill it back up. And which, once again, if you don't like children, don't have any, all right? But so, but anyway, this is just, uh, anyway, some of us were born behind the Iron Curtain. Um, so, and you're like, what's the Iron Curtain? I know. This, I just love talking about Eastern European history. Um, so, anyway, but, but I just was so sick of it. So, now, so let me fast forward. We're two hours in, and she's filling this thing up every 30 minutes. Which, by the way, there ain't that much to film. It's like I'm taking like two spoonfuls, like, you know, gagging. And then she says, and then she fills it back up after about the two-hour mark. She says, Robert, that's it. If you don't eat it in this half hour, I'm dumping it over your head. And I said, let me spare you the trouble. Bam! And I dumped it over my own head. For just a moment, I felt like the king of the world. Like I had defied an army, right? Single-handed. I was like that man in Tiananmen Square, right? Defying the army. And, and I, for just a moment. Because then I got beat within an inch of my life. And I, what's funny is I, I was having this... Uh, my kids love when I tell stories. And so they were sitting in our bed last night because we had gotten home. Because my wife and I had gone out. By the way, tomorrow is my wife and I's 24th wedding anniversary. Yeah. <clears throat> So we went out and had so many carbs. 
uh, we had so many carbs. It was great. So anyway, so we got home and then, I don't know, I was in kind of a story, I'm always in like a storytelling mood. And so I was telling my kids, were like, tell us one more, tell us one more. Anyway, my wife was like, you know, you've been doing one more story for like an hour, but I was telling them uh, this story. And my kids were like, so how did you feel after like, you know, the violence ensued uh, after your mom like beat you? And I was like, I felt like it was totally worth it. Like we'd still do it again. And so but, I, but here's the thing, and once again, and I understand to a degree my parents were coming out of, they, they were leaving Cuba and just horrible conditions to come here, and so they had a certain way of viewing the world, and I was forced to eat everything as a kid uh, because I was warned, maybe you were warned, about the eminent food shortage <laughs> that was coming, and so they were like, you got to learn to eat everything because when the food shortage comes, you're going to be ready. And I, and, I, and I remember telling them, and I was like, if the food starts running out in America, like what are the chances that caldo gallego is the only thing that's going to be left? Like what are the chances of that? And then, and I'm like, and by the way, why are you guys so negative? Why don't you think, you know, the food's going to run out and all that's going to be left are Happy Meals. And, uh, and man, my kids, my, my parents would get so upset because they hated things like humor and wit. Uh, they didn't understand them or like them. And so they just, they tried to purge it from their house. And so, but my parents would ask me like, oh, what do you want to eat? And I would tell them like a happy meal. And they would get so upset. They were like, that's not real food. How could you even like that? And I'm like, listen, you start putting toys in your food and I'll pick your stuff. And um, that did not go over well. See this, all the laughter, you hear that? None of that. None of that. Um, I think my parents were like part German or something because they were just like not into humor at all. And so, which <laughs> I found my jokes funny. They found their, you know, it's like, it's like people. They're like, you know, you're going to get put in timeout. My parents didn't know about timeout. They knew about knockout. That's what my parents were all about. So anyway, but here's what happens, right? Is that, <laughs> by the way, I didn't say any of this to 10 o'clock. So, uh, but here's what happens. As, as we get older, you start to realize that we're really after the same thing, right? We're not just happy meal, but we're after a happy career and a happy marriage, a happy family, a happy life. And sometimes it kind of eludes us. And it's not because we don't want it enough. And it's not because we aren't willing to pay the price to get it. But a lot of times it's because we're looking for it in the wrong places. I mean, we, we don't find it in culture, because culture always seems to be changing its definition of happiness and what should make us happy. And then when we have the thing that we thought would make us happy, it, it, it changes. We don't find it in stuff because what was supposed to make us happy now doesn't make us happy a year from now. In fact, I have this app on my phone called Time Hop. You might have it too, where every day I get this notification that these are all the pictures that you took on this day or pictures that you posted on social media or whatever. Anyway, yesterday... I posted a picture that I guess it was like seven or eight years ago. I, I posted the box because I had just gotten the iPhone 4. And I, was, I thought that was like the coolest guy because I had the iPhone 4. And I was the coolest guy for like a month. And then the iPhone 4S came out. And I'm like, look at me lugging around this piece of garbage, right? Because it was good until the new one came out. And I remember when I had the iPhone 4 and I was meeting with a guy and he, I said something during our meeting and he went to write it down. So he opens up his phone and he had the original iPhone. And I remember it feeling so bad for him 
I was like, wow, I didn't know things were going so bad in your life that you are like four phones behind. Like, wow, you're, you're like on the edge of falling off of society, you know? And so, but that's how it works, right? And here's the thing, but the problem is, is that in, for so many things, happiness is this moving target. The cool thing is that's not what the Bible challenges us to find. Rather than happiness, God challenges us to find joy because joy is a completely different animal. Happiness is an external feeling that is completely dependent on my circumstances. Joy is totally different. Joy is this inside job that wells up inside of us despite our circumstances. Now, here's why I tell you this. is because we've been studying through the book of Hebrews. And by the way, next week we're going to finish Hebrews if you've been with us for the last, I don't know, six months or so. And which Hebrews is the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It was written to a group of Christians who were going through a very difficult season. And they were asking the questions that we ask when we're going through a difficult season, which is, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And the answer to that question is this very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement for us to do the one thing that's going to help when we're going through a season of difficulty, and that is to fix our eyes on Jesus. And from the very beginning of this book, he starts with the first 10 chapters talking about how Jesus is better than anything else we could put our faith, hope, and trust in. Then in chapter 11, he says, I want you to see what that looks like. And he goes through Jewish history showing us all of these people who uh, are our heroes in the faith because they modeled faith. They modeled trust even in difficult seasons as they were walking with God. And then we get to chapter 12 where he, st we, he says that you've got to fix your eyes on Jesus because if you're suffering, guess what? Jesus suffered and he suffered well. And even if we suffer or experience at sometimes even correction from God, it's all for our good. But here's what can happen is that if you've been with us in Hebrews, you can start to think like, yeah, man, life is this race and there are challenges and there's difficulties. And so I guess the purpose of life is just to kind of endure it. The purpose of life is just to kind of grind it out until I safely arrive at death and then step into eternity. And if we think that, then we're missing the whole point. Listen, that Christians should be the most joy-filled people on the planet for so many reasons. And the writer of Hebrews is going to give us now at the very end, at the last chapter, he's going to give us some application to remember that we should be people of joy, that joy should be the thing that distinguishes who we are. And he's going to show us in three very contrarian ways uh, that how Christians should have more joy than the average person and how it should be obvious to anyone that we encounter. So we're going to start in chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, your outline, the Calvary app, or you're looking at the screen, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 13. And here's what we read. He says, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain angels, for by doing so, some have unwittingly, uh, don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels is a reference to Genesis 18. And remember the prisoners as if chained with them, the, uh, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. And if you pause there and give me your attention. Now, three ways to have joy, totally contrarian ways. Here's number one. And that is that I need to love people who can never repay me. That's the first one. Now, in these three verses, he talks about three different types of people. He talks about brotherly love. He talks about strangers. Then he talks about prisoners. And so the first is this, these, these three types of people. He says, let brotherly love continue. Now that first 
phrase brotherly love is the Greek word Philadelphia, which if you're the city, the city of brotherly love, that's what the word means in Greek. And it is a reference to brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, he knew that was already happening. That's why he says, let brotherly love continue, that it's already going on. I love to quote this verse every time my kids are fighting. And then they get mad at each other or hit each other. And then someone starts crying. And then they're both screaming at each other. And I walk in and I just say, Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. And they get upset. And I laugh because I really do think it's funny when I quote that. Because some of the jokes are just for me. And uh, so, but, but anyway, but he says, let brotherly love. Because listen, as a parent, you got to have some humor in your life. And so sometimes you just, like, they don't like it. But... Once again, it just, some of these jokes are just to make me laugh. And Carrie and I will just get a chuckle, and then we just kind of move. Like, you guys work it out. We're out of here. So, but then he references entertaining strangers. Now, the Greek word here is, now, the, the thing that we miss, because once again, most of us don't speak the Greek language, is that there is a parallel, because he talks about Philadelphia, which is brotherly love. Let that continue. Then he talks about philonexia, which is the second thing, and that is to love strangers. It's where we get our word, uh, like phileo, is, is, uh, talks about a, a, an affection for each other. And then he talks about nexia, which is where we get our word like xenophobic, um, which is referring to, you know, being scared of people that are strangers or from another nation or whatnot. And so there is a parallel between these, these two verses. And, and now you've got to understand something now, because I think it's important for us to understand the context in which these letters were written. In the Middle East, not just in that culture, but even to this day, hospitality is such a high virtue. I, uh, my wife and I have r- some really good friends of ours that were missionaries uh, in the Middle East for about nine years or so. And one of the things that they would tell us is, is that, especially in some of the more rural areas where you would just be walking like to the market and there were just homes, if you had to use the restroom and you could just knock on anyone's door and just tell them, say, hey, can I use your restroom? They would open up and, and let you use. And I just want you to think about how that would work in your neighborhood. Like, that is not going to go well in your neighborhood. That's not how things operate here. In America, because, you know, somebody knocks on your door and says, can I use the restroom? And you're like, it's a home invasion! You know, you just think it's a, it's a different thing. Maybe you're not thinking it's a home invasion. You just think it's somebody selling something, but I think it's a home invasion. Anyway, so, but, you, but what would happen is in that, in that in th- there, and once again, this is like thousands of years. You, they would knock on the door. Hey, can we use the restroom? You go in. They would point you in the direction of the restroom. When you come out of the restroom, they have tea set up for you to drink. They have something for you to eat. Then you sit down, tell them a little bit about your life, drink some tea, have a cookie or two. Then by the time all that's done, got to use the restroom again. And then you use it again before you leave. And, and that's because hospitality is such a high virtue. The thought of someone having the reputation of being inhospitable was unheard of in that, in that culture. So for us to understand this, and, and um, once again, I want to kind of drill down a little deeper into the culture. Um, in ancient times, especially in the time that Hebrews was written, travel was rare. The reason travel was rare was because it was dangerous. That's why when Jesus tells the story like of the Good Samaritan that a man, a man was walking, he fell among robbers, it's like, well, yeah, of course he was traveling. Like the, it was understood that a person that was traveling was in danger because it was dangerous to travel. There were few travelers. Because there were few travelers, that impacted the economy of there being inns or anything that would resemble a hotel for overnight accommodations. The other thing that's important to know is that one of the reasons we travel is because we know people who have moved, and so we go to visit them, and that's, people didn't move as much as they do now. 
And so if you went to a city, it's because you knew someone there. Or you went to a city because you had some business in that particular city. And so the only way that people could travel at that time would be to uh, receive the hospitality of other people and that someone would take a stranger in. Now, here's the thing that you got to understand. So if you're a note taker, I gave you these four ancient rules of hospitality. The first was what was called the invitation. And this is part of the code that people followed. Where this is where, when you just, when you came to a town, you just start knocking on doors like, hey man, can I stay at your house? No, the way it worked is you would go to the gate of the city. The gate of the city was like city hall. That's where people uh, conducted business. That's where people from out of town would come in and you would meet them and they would buy and sell. And so you would come in or there would be an open square or there would be a well of water because every city in the ancient world was always built around a well of water because this is the desert and in the desert, water is life. And so you would stay there until someone invited you into your home. So if you want to write this in the margin, you look at like Genesis 19, Genesis 24, Acts chapter 16, just to name a few of the them to wait for the, invi- the people to wait for the invitation for hospitality to stay in someone's home. The second thing was what was called the screening. Now the screening, because you wouldn't just let anyone in your home because someone could have come to this city with the purpose of, hey, outside the city I have an army and I'm going to invade this city. So you would do some screening to find out a little bit of the background on the person. And so what would happen is for many people, they would have a letter of recommendation. And so you'll see that Paul does that in uh, his epistles where you'll see like, especially in letters like Colossians or Philippians at, you know, like in Philippians chapter two, Colossians chapter four, he writes a commendation to the person who's delivering the letter. So it's like, Hey, they're delivering this letter to you. And by the way, be good to them because they're doing this on my behalf. The third thing was provision. If you invited someone into your home, you, you had an obligation to wash their feet to provide a feast, not just like throw them a granola bar if they're hungry. No, you provided a feast, and then you gave that stranger rest. And then number four, and this is what the the traveler would do, is that the stranger could not stay in your house for more than two nights. And in fact, there was this ancient, and you can look this up, it's readily available. There's this ancient Christian document that's called the Didache, which means the teaching of the 12 in Greek. And it was a whole list of things that should and shouldn't be done in the church. And there is a rule for someone who considers themselves a prophet. If they come to town and they want to share their ministry with the church, they would come in and they would say, you can let the prophet stay two nights. If he asks to stay a third night, he's a false prophet, kick him out of your house. So those old Christians, man, they were hardcore. So now the last group that he talks about, and then we're going to do some application to this, he talks about is to remember prisoners. Now, once again, prison back then is not like prison today. Prison today is you have accommodations. They might not be great, but there's a bed and there's a sink and there's a place to use a restroom. There's three square meals a day and then there's all kinds of activities and flat screen TVs and the opportunity to get a college degree while you're there. And so that's not the way it worked in the ancient world. In the ancient Roman world, if you were a Roman citizen and you were in jail, you got an allotment of food and that really wasn't even enough to survive on. There was unbearable cold. There was a lack of water. There were cramped quarters because they would just stuff people into these prisons. And there was this sickening stench because there were very few toilets, a lot of open sewage, and which made sleeping difficult and the waking hours completely miserable. And so prisoners needed friends who would bring them food, who would bring them clothing and other basic needs. And you see this happen at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy when he asks Timothy to come to bring this uh, coat that he left 
um, in a city called Troas and to bring these books that he could read while he was there. But when he gets thrown into prison in Acts chapter 24, it says this about Paul. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So what's the point that the writer of Hebrews is making? And what he's showing us is that even in the midst of your own struggle, if you want to have joy, we have an opportunity to love people who have no ability to repay us. And this is what happens when you help a person in need, when you help someone who's homeless, you help someone who is is struggling. And by the way, if you're going to help somebody who's homeless, help them. You don't have to post it on social media for everyone to know that it happened. Do you know that? It's like, hey, I just gave you some groceries. Here, let's take a picture so everyone knows that I can virtue signal that I'm a really good person. Like, no, don't do it. In fact, here's what Jesus said. He says, when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing because that deed that you did in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And listen, you know you can also be hospitable by inviting people into your spiritual home so that they can come here and hear the gospel and see their lives change. One of the things that I love that we do at Calvary At the beginning of quarantine, one of the things we found out, uh, Sheridan House is a a ministry that we partner with at Calvary and we have for such a long time. Well, they they do so much work with single moms and they had such a run on their their food pantry and we just felt like, you know what? What if we took that as a responsibility at Calvary and when that food pantry starts running low, you let us know and we're going to start... Um, making sure that that thing stays stocked up. And you'll see these red bags that we have outside. And uh, every, if you've been here for a while, then you've probably heard about it every couple of months. We'll talk about it. And people just go, listen, my kids don't like going food shopping. But when we have the red bags, I mean, they get so excited because they know that we're helping single moms and families. And you drop them off here, and then we'll bring them over to Sheridan House. And here's what I love is that we bring them over. They stock it up. They minister to the single moms. And they have no, you know, and, and the single moms have no idea that we did it. And it's such a cool opportunity for us to do in secret what our father then can reward openly. And here's the point. If life is just about your struggle, if everything in your life is just about your struggle, you're not going to have very much joy. This is why forgiveness is so powerful. This is why generosity is so powerful. This is why encouragement is so powerful because you have the opportunity um, to, to give a gift that doesn't have to be repaid, that can't be repaid that you can love and bless people who have no way to repay you and listen, who don't even know that it was you who blessed them. And you know what you'll find? You'll find joy and gratitude even in the midst of difficulty. So that's the first thing he says about finding joy. Here's the second one in verse four. He says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Second thing I want to tell you about finding joy is that I need to live privately in a way that honors God. Now, this at first glance seems a little bit out of place. It's like, aren't you talking about going through difficulty and now you're going to talk about marriage? Like, oh, okay, I get it now. Going through difficulty? Yeah, it's a perfect time to bring up marriage. Um, that's why I tell, whenever I officiate a wedding, I tell the couple, um, that marriage is like a three-ring circus. There's the engagement ring, there's the wedding ring, and then there's the suffering. Um, <laughs> I love that dumb little joke. Um, but now, here's why the writer in the midst of this talks about the health of your marriage. Because everything in your life could be going right. And if your marriage is struggling, you're miserable. 
And yet, strangely enough, everything in your life could be crumbling. And if your marriage is strong, you have all kinds of joy. How is that possible? Because your marriage is the foundation of every relationship in your life. And so when he talks about this, this verse kind of split up into three sections. So I want to talk about them and how do, we, how do we have a marriage that's really strong. Here's the first one if you're a note taker. And that is this, to give honor to your spouse. Now, imagine that the Queen of England is coming to your house. Now, I used to talk about this and I'd say the president, but people get all bent out of shape now whenever you mention the president that I'm not even going to talk about it. So we're going to talk about the royal family in England because I don't think you follow British politics. And if you send me an email, I swear to you, the next time I talk about this, it's going to be about the Turkish prime minister that I know you know nothing about. So just so we're all clear. All right, so (laughs) now, if the queen came to your house, you'd probably let the queen sit wherever she wants. You'd probably find out what she likes to eat and make it. You'd probably even try to rock a British accent, throw on a Beatles record, and, uh, you know, so that she felt at home. But you know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't demand your own way. You wouldn't act selfishly. Guys, listen, if your wife is a Christian, if you guys are Christians, and you treat her like the Queen of England, I can assure you, you aren't going to have very many marriage problems. In fact, the Apostle Peter, who's one of Jesus' main disciples, he said it this way. He said, husbands likewise dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. Here's the thing that Peter says. Honor your wife. Here's what that means. Hold her in high esteem. Now, because it's 2021, let me address this. Because you're like, but the Bible says she's the weaker vessel. I can't believe how sexist that is. Now, ladies, if you have ever asked your husband to open a jar of tomato sauce, then you have agreed with this verse. Because generally speaking, unless, <laughs> generally speaking, unless you're married to the girl in the Mandalorian, all right, unless you're married to her, and good for you if you are, and, uh, but if, unless you're married to her, generally speaking, men have a little more upper body strength. That's what he's talking about. Now, if you don't like that illustration, let me give it to you another way. All right. I want you to imagine a fine crystal wine glass. You can't throw it around. You got to wash it by hand because if you throw it in the dishwasher, it's going to break some of your Cuban. You don't even own dishwashers, all right? You don't believe in that. Or ceiling fans, all right? (laughs) That's a thing, by the way, so look that up. So, but you know what? And that's, you just, there's just something... Uh, wonderful about that, you know, your husband is more like a beer mug, right? Big, clunky, you can throw it around a little bit, you don't even have to be that nice to it, it doesn't get nuance, it's just, and, and, it, and it does just fine. So, that's the difference. Do not email me, all right? Or I'm going to talk about this again, all right? And I'm going to, the whole message will be like 50 illustrations about this and ending with a push-up contest. All right. So now, now that we're all on the same page, 
uh, this is just one of the reasons, once again, why husbands should be chivalrous towards their wives, by holding the door open. It has nothing like, don't you think I know how to open a door? Of course, right? You're older than what, like a month old? Of course you know how to open a door. But it's just how you honor someone. You just don't do have your spouse, you don't have your wife do like the nasty stuff that has to be done at home, right? You deal with that. Like, I mean, so like my wife doesn't get gas for her car. Gas stations are just weird places as is. And so now, mind you, my wife the other day was out with the girls and she got gas. She's like, hey, I want to know I filled up your car. I was mortified. And it was my car that she was in. She's like, she took my car instead of hers. And once again, I don't care if I'm running on empty, but hers, like if it's halfway, I always fill it up because I don't want her to deal with it. But the other day we were all together and I drove, we drove into the um, gas station and she says to me, she says, which side is my uh, tank on? And I was like, thank you so much for saying that. I'm so happy that you weren't positive which side it was on. And it tells me that I'm doing something, well, I don't do a lot well, but I'm doing that well. But once again, is it because she doesn't know? But no, it's because if the Queen of England is riding shotgun in your car and you get to the gas station like, Elizabeth, throw me 10 bucks on 87. You're not gonna do that unless you're some kind of psycho, right? No, you're gonna do it. You're gonna do it. Here's the challenge that we have in America is that we don't have a culture of honor. And we don't go out of our way to honor people. And that's why it seems so foreign. Most other cultures in the world, to honor someone of importance is the most natural thing to do. So, of course, a loving husband would want to honor his wife because that woman is his world. That's why, listen, here's what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 18. The man who finds a wife finds a treasure. And he receives favor from the Lord. This is why a husband honors his wife. Because he recognizes that that woman is a gift from God. That she is the physical representation of God's undeserved favor in his life. So here's what a godly husband does. He's looking for ways to honor his wife. To prove how much he loves her. And in doing so, here's what he does. Not even realizing that he's making it really easy for her to trust him. That's the first part. Uh, marriage is honorable among all. Here's the second thing that he says, and the bed undefiled. Here's number two in your outline. Be affectionate with your spouse. Now, guys, I know you're very interested in the second part. So um, if you'll do the first part, the second part of the verse isn't going to be an issue. And now when he talks about the marriage bed, you know he's not talking about a sleep number. You know that. He's not, he's not, he's talking about bedroom activities. And if you're still unclear as to what I'm talking about, when you go home, I want to encourage you to turn on the Discovery Channel for like 30 minutes, and you're going to check out like some wildebeests or whatever doing what they do. And then if you have more questions, talk to your wife. And uh, so, but the writer is encouraging married couples to be intimate with each other. Now, there's also a theological issue uh, as well, because in that culture in which Hebrews was written, there was a false teaching going around that was called Gnosticism. Now, this is uh, the word gnosko in Greek means knowledge. And so this group that were called Gnostics, they were claiming special knowledge. And it was a, a, a heresy, a cult uh, at the, in the time of the early church, because they believed that Jesus was not a person. They believed that he did not have like flesh and bone like us. They believed that he was a spirit. Um, and that because of that, it created a very strange theology that was 
causing believers to do all kinds of things, but they believed that the flesh was evil and the spirit was good. Just like you would put good seed in dirty soil, that's what they thought. And so Gnostics, to deal with the fact that the flesh was evil, they were divided into basically two groups. The group number one were called Stoics. So how do you deal with the flesh being evil? They would actually beat their flesh into submission by whipping and punishing their bodies physically. The second group were called the Epicureans, and they took a totally different approach. Their answer was to indulge their flesh, since they said, well, only the spirit matters. Do whatever you want and get it out of your system. And they were involved in all kinds of uh, immorality. And so now I want you to guess which church was easier to invite your friends to. Um, Funny enough, and this is just how weird things are. um, Funny enough, the group, historically, the group was about even. They were, about the group, they were about the same size. Now, before you think that, that oh, that culture was so primitive, all, our culture is extreme as well. There are those who think that anything goes, and then there are those who think that God is a prude and doesn't want anybody to have any fun at any time for any reason. And neither of those extremes are true. That God wants every married person to enjoy sex because sex is the vehicle that God has given husbands and wives to express intimacy with each other. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, honor your marriage and enjoy your marriage because this is how I created human relationships. Once again, the writer of Hebrews, Solomon, would say it this way. This way, here it is. He says, let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times, and may you always be captivated by her love. Now, should you quote that verse to your wife? I don't know. I guess it depends on the woman, I suppose. But if you're like, you know, honey, you're like a loving deer. You're a graceful doe. As I consider your... Stop! You know, so... I have friends that quote that to their spouses. The results are mixed. So I don't know that you should say it, but you should definitely believe it. All right? Now, all right, here's the third thing that he says. This is where it gets a little tougher. And he says, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Here's the third thing I want to tell you. Find yourself a spouse. All right? The hard truth that the writer says at the end of this verse is that God will judge. That is, fornicators, these are single people having sex outside of marriage, and adulterers, that is married people that are unfaithful to their spouses. Why? Because the adulterer, the adulterer dishonors his or her marriage by being unfaithful, and the fornicator dishonors his or her future marriage through their activity. Because if you're dating someone and you both end up marrying somebody else, you don't want to be the person who is intimate with someone else's spouse. And listen, the Roman world in which Hebrews was written was a sex-crazed culture. I know that that's very hard for us to relate to because of the pure culture in which we live now. Um, No, but honestly, how do you deal with living in this lust-filled, crazy culture that we find ourselves in? Remember, remember, um, you know, let your wife satisfy you at all times and a loving deer, a graceful doe. About two verses before that, here's what... Uh, here's what Solomon writes. He says this, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. And then right after that, he talks about your wife. And uh, so what is he saying? He's telling married couples, are you thirsty? Drink water from your own well. How much water can a married couple drink? As much water as they want. Well, can we flavor the water? 
and mix things up. Do whatever you want. As long as it's not ungodly, illegal, or makes your spouse uncomfortable, I don't want to hear about it. Well, you're like, this is intense talk about water. If you still think we're talking about water, you need to watch the Discovery Channel when you get home. <laughs> so when your kid, because I know you always ask your kids, huh, kids, what did you learn at church? And then when they're, what if they ask you today, well, mom and dad, what did you learn at church? And you're like, we learned about the importance of staying hydrated as married couples. <laughs> about, you know, we just, H2O is good for a marriage and to have as much H2O as humanly possible. And so... Moving on before I get emails from people. Um, <laughs> here's where we're going to end it before I get myself into trouble. Verse 5, he says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you pause there and give me your attention. Last thing, finding joy. I need to look at possessions in a healthy way. The easiest way to lack joy and be miserable in your life is to focus on what you don't have. And that you would be happy if you had the thing that you didn't have. And here's what we tend to think is that only rich people are greedy and covetousness and don't have enough. But you have to understand the context in which this letter uh, was written. The people that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they weren't rich. They didn't have anything. In fact, one of the, if you go back to chapter 10, he talks about how their goods were plundered, their inheritances were taken away because they were Christians. Now, all of this applies to people who have a lot, and it applies to people who have a little, because covetousness isn't about how much you have, it's about focusing on what you don't have, and because you don't have it, you're miserable. Now, the thing that's important to understand is that according to the Bible, there's nothing wrong with being rich and there's nothing wrong with being poor. There's a problem when your focus is on what it is that you don't have. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Philippians 4. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little. Here's the thing that's important for us to understand, that contentment is not something that comes naturally. That's why Paul says it's something that he had to learn. We learn contentment. And you know what brings contentment? Gratitude. Bring, being grateful for what God has done in your life frees you from covetousness, and it just invites joy. Listen, I've been pastoring this church for 20 years, and I was an associate pastor for a couple of years before that. So now I'm talking about like 22, 23 years in ministry. And you know, I've had people confess all kinds of things to me. And yet I've never had anyone say, pastor, I need to meet with you. Why? I'm really struggling with coveting. It's in the Ten Commandments, and nobody has ever said they're struggling with it. And, and yet... Most of our credit card statements might prove otherwise. But you know, the thing is, is that if we lack gratitude, it will never be enough. And you know why we, we're not content? Here, here's what happens. is because we're not really looking for the stuff that we actually covet. We're looking for the thing behind it. Like, people don't actually covet a car. 
What they covet is what the car represents, that it represents freedom and youth and power and control, that we don't really, like, man, I had the small house and then I had the medium house, but now, man, the jumbo, that's really what I wanted. And, and, and it's, but people aren't real, that's not really what we're after. We're after what it represents, security and success and accomplishment and some level of prestige. It's not even the gadgets that we were joking about earlier that we want. We want what it represents. It represents feeling wanted and important and relevant. You see, we think we desire the things, and what we don't realize is we actually desire the spiritual substance behind the thing. That's why the things don't satisfy. C.S. Lewis, most of us know C.S. Lewis from his fiction works like the Chronicles of Narnia and whatnot, but most of his books were on different aspects of the Christian life, and His book, uh, Mere Christianity, is one of my favorite books of all time. It was required reading when I was in college, and I'm so grateful. But one of the things he says in Mere Christianity is this. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. When God gave the people of Israel ten commandments, and number ten is about not coveting, He was trying to teach people who had been slaves for 400 years how to be free. And that lesson is still true today. God wants you and me and us to be free, to have a joy that comes from him. And listen, some of us, we've been searching for it, and we think that, man, me being finally happy or finally having joy comes with um, getting to a certain price tag, and, and then we get it, and it's not. Listen, the good news is we don't have to search any further. Jesus offers us that kind of life. In fact, that's why he died. That's why he rose again, so we we wouldn't have to keep striving for it. That there is this joy and peace that comes in knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that our past is paid for, and that we can have gratitude for everything that comes into our lives, and we can find contentment and satisfaction that we were created by him. And that nothing in this world will satisfy until we come home to him. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that reality. That you want to bring joy, contentment, peace, forgiveness into our lives if we will come to you. And so I pray even now for some of us who are going to make that decision. That you would hear us and transform us. Listen, with every head bowed and every eye closed as we're praying together, if that's you and you say, Pastor, that what you've been talking about is me. I want to experience forgiveness. I want to experience freedom from my past and the things that I'm so guilty of. And I, want, I wish I could make things new. You know that that's what Jesus offers? He says that when any man comes to him, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. God is giving us this opportunity for right now, everything to be different if we'll come to him. And so if you're saying, Pastor, that's me, I want you to pray for me as we close. And I do want to pray for you. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to invite you to just lift your hand so I can pray for you as we close. If that's you, yeah. See hands here, hands in the back, hands all over this room. God bless you guys. Lord, I want to thank you for every hand that's lifted that represents a heart that is ready to invite you to come into their lives and transform them from the inside out. Lord, we want to experience forgiveness, grace, mercy that comes from you, and a joy that can begin, that can come from the inside and transform us 
from the inside out. Listen, those of you that lifted a hand, I want to invite you to repeat this prayer with me. It's a prayer of commitment. They might be my words, but I pray that they represent your heart to God in this moment. In fact, we're all going to pray it out loud together. Just say, dear God, I come to you today, and I'm sorry for all I've done wrong, but I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.